Okay, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles. Once again, we are going to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Today's text is verses 15 through 23. 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 23, as we continue to make our way through this wonderful book of God's Word. Chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to use one of the Bibles on the pew in front of you, because I think you'll benefit most by looking at the text with me. We'll look back and forth at it a number of times this morning. 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 23. William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery in England. Martin Luther King Jr. and his fight for racial equality. NASA's quest to be the first to put a man on the moon. Roger Bannister on a mission to be the first person to run a four-minute mile. The Wright brothers trying desperately to be the first to lift an airplane off the ground and keep it there. Or Rudy Rudiger's relentless pursuit of his dream to play football for Notre Dame. What do all these people have in common? Well, they were consumed by something. Consumed. They were laser-focused. They were driven and motivated every single day. Some might say obsessed by one thing. One thing compelled them. Have you ever been compelled by something? And I don't necessarily mean to the level of Rudy, but have you ever been compelled by something, even just for, for a time? Perhaps for some of us, we've gone through periods of time, if you're like me, of time in your life when you needed to lose weight. And maybe you actually did it successfully. And it's hard to get on that roll, but once you're on it, you wake up and you think, I, I I need to have a good day. I need to eat right today. I need to make the good decisions today. Every time you sit down to a meal, you're thinking about making a decision based on that. Every time you go to bed, did I have a good day with diet and exercise? Let me check how much I weigh on the scale now. It's It's kind of consuming for a while. You're compelled by it. Or perhaps for you it might have been a a time in your life where you're saving money for something. Saving up money for that first car, for that dream vacation. Every financial decision you're making has to do with that one goal. You're compelled by it. It's what drives you, right? Or I often think about the time my wife and I figured out we were pregnant with our, our son, our first kid. Those next nine months... There, there was like nothing in the world but getting ready for the baby, right? Have you ever experienced this? That's all it is. Every day, all day, 24-7, that's all you're thinking about. You're compelled by it. Well, in the New Testament, the picture of a mature Christian is one of a person who is compelled by the gospel. The mature Christian in the New Testament picture of that kind of person is one who is compelled by the gospel. They're driven by it. It's what gets them up in the morning. When they go to sleep, it is how they measure whether or not it has been a good day. It's what they order their lives around. The gospel is central to the Christian in the New Testament. Well, Paul was one such person. He was absolutely consumed by the gospel. And he speaks to that in our text this morning. I'm going to read our text, verses 15 through 23, 1 Corinthians 9. I'd encourage you to follow along with me in your copy as I read out loud. Paul says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, for nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die 
than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach Christ, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law but of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. In our text today, Paul talks about two ways that he is compelled by the gospel. Two primary ways. The first is he is compelled to preach. That's what we'll look at in the first half of our message today. The second, he is compelled to win others to Christ. That's what we'll look at in the second half. Compelled by the gospel in these two ways. First, he is compelled to preach. He talks about this in verses 15 through 18. Now, I want you to understand these verses that we just read, they are not simply verses that we lift up out of the context of 1 Corinthians and look at by themselves. They're verses in a context. Right? This, this book of 1 Corinthians was a letter. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. It's, it's an entire letter, the whole thing. And when they received it, they were to read the entire thing. Right? And so we're studying a small section of this, but we cannot forget the overall argument that Paul's making right here. Paul's actually in the middle of an argument in 1 Corinthians 9, that stretches all the way back to chapter 6. And this argument is this. We are to lay down our rights for the good of others, for unity among the body of Christ. We're supposed to lay down our rights for the good of others. And so Paul talks about all the way back in chapter 6, laying down your right to defend yourself. Don't go to court against your brother and sister in Christ. Don't sue one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded for the unity of the church? Don't go to court against one another. And in chapter 7, he starts talking to married and single people. To the married people, he says, you're laying down your right to control your own body. You don't have authority over your own body anymore. Your spouse does too. And then to single people, he says, you're laying down your right to get married. For the glory of God, for the good of his kingdom, you're laying down your right to marriage and to a family. And then in chapter 8, if you remember, Paul talks about how we are all to lay down our own rights, to insist on our freedoms. We're supposed to lay down that right and not insist on our freedoms for the good of those around us. And after saying all those things and telling the the Corinthians all those ways that they should lay down their rights, then Paul moves in to a section where he talks about the right of the minister to be paid for preaching the gospel. We talked about this last week. The right of the minister to be paid for preaching the gospel. But now, in verse 15, you can see it. Paul says, but I didn't make use of that right. I am not exercising my right to be paid for the gospel, Paul says. And so, Paul says to the Corinthians, if I'm laying aside that right myself, can you all not also lay down your rights 
for the good of the church, for the good of one another, and for the spread of the gospel. But notice in verse 16 of our text today, let's look back one more time, verse 16, where Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was compelled to preach. He had to. He couldn't not preach. It's like he didn't have a choice. Paul is a fascinating man in the New Testament. Paul's conversion is a fascinating story. If you don't remember, Paul was converted as he was traveling on a road to a place called Damascus. He was traveling on that road so that when he got there, he could arrest Christians and throw them in jail. Paul's life is fascinating because it's, it's two halves of a life that are diametrically opposed to one another. First, his life started out and he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus grabs a hold of him. And then he preaches and wins people to Christ. But his whole first life was, was persecuting the church. Remember, Paul was the one standing over the, the proceedings, presiding over the proceedings when Stephen was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7 for his faith. Paul was giving his approval as it was happening. He was presiding over that. He was dragging Christians out of their homes, we read in the New Testament, throwing them into jail for believing and following in Jesus. And as he's on the road to Damascus, he's blinded by a light. And he hears a voice, an audible voice speaking to him. It's the voice of Jesus. He hears it. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His name was Saul to the Hebrews. To the Greeks, his name was Paul. Saul's his Hebrew name. Paul's his Greek name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. You persecute my followers, you persecute me. And then Jesus tells him, he says, you are my chosen instrument. You will get up and go into town and wait for the one I bring to you And then after I bring a man to you to give you back your sight, you will then go proclaim my name and my glory among the Gentiles. You're going to be a preacher for me. And so Paul says right here, I'm compelled to do this. I have no choice. Not that he's doing it against his will. He wants to do it with everything he has. What he's saying is, there's nothing else for me to do. Jesus grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and said, you're going to do this. And I said, yes, sir, because I was scared out of my mind. And because now that I've seen him, I understand. I'm compelled. I've seen his glory, and I can't do anything else. He was compelled to preach. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, as someone who has been called to preach the gospel, I've never known anyone who was called like Paul. When God called me to preach the gospel, he didn't blind me with a light, and I I didn't hear the voice of Jesus like that. But I'm here to tell you, this is how it feels. When God calls a man to preach the gospel, this is how it feels. You have no other choice. You can't do anything else. Now, I don't mean I don't do anything else. I don't mean I don't have other duties in my life. And I don't mean that if, if it came to it, I, I would go find another way to make money. That's, that's fine. But that other way to make money would just be to make a living. I have to preach the gospel. I have to. There's no choice. Jeremiah says what I feel in Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah was God's prophet. God gave Jeremiah his words. He did this to many prophets in the Old Testament. He says, go go give these words out to the people. Jeremiah said in chapter 20, verse 9, if I say I will not mention him, mention God, 
or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary with holding it in. Indeed, I, I cannot. He had God's words inside of him, and he, he told himself, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just feeling all kinds of persecution. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he preached and he preached and he preached, but his message was judgment. God gave him a message to give to the people, and it was just judgment. And Jeremiah gives it out, and the people hate him for it. And so he starts thinking, well, what if I just don't want to do this anymore? And then all of a sudden he realizes that's no option at all. God's word is in me like a fire trying to get out. If I shut it up in my bones, I'm going to feel that. It can't happen. I have to do this. When God calls a man to preach, he gives him such a burning desire to do it that not doing it hurts. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that's how it feels when you can't. When God calls you to preach and you can't do it, it hurts. It aches. You have to find some outlet. Okay, you'll, you'll go teach the third and fourth grade class at church if you can't preach on Sunday mornings. You'll, you'll, you'll put a, a fake crowd around you and just preach to it, preach to a brick wall, go preach to animals. It doesn't matter. It's got to come out. There's got to be an outlet when God calls you to do this and puts his words in you. There has to be an outlet. It's like when you're on a long trip and you've got to go to the bathroom really bad. You're not going to feel good until you get relief, right? You're not going to feel good until you can finally release that. Now, that's a silly, crude example, but here's maybe a a more serious one. And I don't mean to make light of this. But when a young woman deeply desires to have children, and she can't for some reason, perhaps it's infertility issues, perhaps it's a husband who's not ready to take that step into having kids, there's a burning desire that's deeper than just, oh, having kids would be nice. Oh, having kids would be fun. Oh, we've always wanted to do that. It's deeper than that. For a woman who's been created by God to feel this desire, it's, it's, it's a part of who she is. You can't just turn that off. And it aches when you're not able to do it. I'm not saying I understand this by personal experience, just between those I've been talking to. Preaching, being called to preach is the same way. Charles Spurgeon once said that the first distinguishing mark that a man has been called by God to preach is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. That's how it feels. That's how it felt. When I was in college, halfway through a degree at the University of Kentucky, getting a degree for computer science. I was going to be a computer programmer. I was not planning on becoming a preacher or a minister. And then God called me to do this. Now, for me, it wasn't like a one-day shot-in-the-arm thing like it was for Paul. It was over time. I had to discern this. It took about a year and a half for me to fully discern that God was calling me to preach. But once I figured that out, once I discerned that, that's what's going on inside of me. It was an all-absorbing, intense desire for the work. And I'm here to tell you, once you feel that, you can't do anything else. There's no choice in the matter anymore. If I'm going to be poor, so be it. If I'm going to be persecuted, so be it. No matter what happens, I've got to do this. That's how it is when God calls a man to preach the gospel. Because of this, the preacher has no ground for boasting. Did you see that in verse 16? Paul says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. You can't boast about doing what God didn't give you a choice to do. right? You can't show off. 
You can't take pride in yourself and what you have done when God didn't give you a choice. When God compels you to do something, all you do is say, yes, sir, but you can't, you can't boast about it. Paul is only doing what God has compelled him to do. Jesus said something interesting during his ministry when he was talking about slaves and masters in Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 10, at the end of a discourse on slaves and their masters, he says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Think about that, brothers and sisters. That's for all of us, not just preachers. When we've done everything we were commanded to do, we should think, I'm an unworthy servant still. I've only done what was required of me. I'm still an unworthy servant before the Lord. Now, why am I telling you all this? In a, in a, a place like this, full of people who might very well never be called to preach. Most of us in here will never be called to preach in the way that I'm talking about. Why do you need to know this? Why is this so important? There's lots of stuff in the Bible about all kinds of other things. Why are we talking about this? Well, first, God might not call you to preach, but he has called you to sit under preaching week in and week out, right? Might not call you to preach, but he has called you to sit under preaching week in and week out. And you need to know what God requires of the man who stands up here to give you God's word. Not just me, but any preacher in any church, right? Not just in this church, but any church. You need to know what God requires of that man. Every church member needs to have an expectation of their preacher. We are not okay with anybody standing up here and giving a nice talk. This is not the place for someone to come and exercise their public speaking gifts, this is not the place for someone who's an exceptional, motivational leader to get up and just give a nice speech. No, this is much too important for that. The church is built up by the preaching of God's Word. The church is built up by the preaching of God's Word. And the church needs men who are certain of their call to preach the Gospel. Whether you're in this church or perhaps in another stage of your life, you might be in a different church with a different preacher. You need to know that that man standing up proclaiming to you God's word, you need to know that he has a call on his life from the Lord to preach the gospel and that he is certain about it. You need men to preach who are certain about their call to preach the gospel. Why? Because preaching the gospel has consequences. It's got consequences. There will be times where God will give me His Word, perhaps it's later in 1 Corinthians, where I will stand up here and I will have to proclaim something from God's Word that you might not like. Perhaps it's something that a lot of people won't like. And then the question is, well, do I do it? Do, do I give them God's Word like it says? What if they don't like it? What if, what if they bristle at that? What if they get mad at me for it? If the preacher's been called by God, he doesn't have a choice. Or let's think about it this way. What if we reach a point in our culture, and I would not be surprised if we do, where standing up and proclaiming the truth of God's word is considered hate speech, and you can be thrown in jail by it? What if that happens? Well, brothers and sisters, you're going to have to get another preacher for the next week, because I'm going to be in jail, right? Well, maybe not, because we know the jailer, but you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? There's no choice in the matter. You, you just do it, no matter what the consequences are. There are people all over the world doing this because God has called them to stand up and proclaim God's word. 
And if you're going to arrest me for it, then arrest me for it. But I don't have a choice. And it's not anything to show off about. Don't, don't get in the pews and sit there and say, oh, that's amazing. It's not. When, when God compels you to do something, you have no grounds for boasting. It's just what he makes you do. You don't have a choice in the matter, right? And I'm, again, I'm not saying I'm doing this against my will. I want to do it with all my heart. But when God compels you by his glory to do this, you don't have a choice. There's no choice in the matter. And so you need to know what to expect of your preacher. You need to know what God expects of the man who stands up here to do this. But second, I say this to you because the local church is the place where future preachers are grown. The local church is the place where future preachers are grown. Not Bible college, not seminary, the church. God has given this work to the church. Brothers and sisters, the need for preachers out in the world far outpaces the number of men who are going into preaching right now in the world. You take a look at our seminaries. Seminaries are falling off one by one. Finances or whatever, closing down. Take a look at our Bible colleges. The number of men graduating with a preaching degree is going down and down and down and down and down. It is alarmingly low. Meanwhile, there are just as many churches out there that need the Word. There are just as many Christians out there that need the Word. There are just as many people out there that need to be fed who are hungry for God and His Word. And brothers and sisters, I don't think it is wrong for us to open our eyes and to understand there are many churches even here in our area that have a preacher now, but because of the age of many of the preachers might not have a preacher in five years or ten years. What's going to happen? Where are the preachers? Where are they going to come from? The local church is the place where future preachers are grown. We want to be a church here at Columbia Christian that produces preachers, not just one that hires them. We want to be a church that produces preachers, not just one that hires them. Because where do they come from? Is there just some you know, collection of preachers out there in, in the world and, and every church just grabs from that collection and they just take a preacher for themselves when they need a preacher. Where do preachers come from? They, they come from churches. They come from groups of Christians that help to raise up a man that God calls a preach. God calls a man, but then the church confirms that calling and cultivates it. God calls the man but then the church confirms that calling and cultivates it. It takes a village, you guys. It's not just the work of the preacher to help raise up other preachers. It's the work of the church as a whole. It takes a village, right? There's an internal call, and then there's an external call. When I was called into ministry, the internal call was what I felt from God in college, thinking, okay, God wants me to do this. I think this is what God has called me to do. But then there's an external call. You've got to have a church that you're involved with that says, okay, we're going to test those gifts. We're going to give you a chance to use those gifts, and we're going to give you feedback. We're going to tell you whether or not we think you're discerning that correctly, right? Because we're all fallible. We don't understand everything there is to understand. Sometimes we think we've heard from God, and it wasn't God. There's, there's legitimately situations where men say, you know, I think I've been called to preach, and then the church starts to analyze it and says, no, I don't think you have. I think that's, you've misunderstood that. But then there's other instances like mine where God calls a man to preach and then the church comes around and the church says, let let us give you a chance to to use those gifts, to test them out. Let us give you feedback to see, you know, if we think there's actual fruit coming from 
what God's doing through you and to see if, if you need to pursue this. And then if so, let's support you and send you out, right? It takes a village. God calls a man, but the church confirms that calling and cultivate, cultivates it. Preachers are grown in the local church. And so, brothers and sisters, can I ask for you to pray for something in your personal lives during the week? Can I ask for you to pray for God to raise up preachers? Because we need them. We need them. Will you pray for that? I've been praying for that for a long time. When I look at the landscape and I look at all the churches and I look at the need that is coming for so many preachers and the, the few of the, the low number, the few men who are going into preaching, I think, what can we do? What do we need to do? We need to do something right now. We need to solve this problem. We need to work to figure it out. But then I think of my own life. And I think, well, how did God make me a preacher? Well, what happened was he grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and said, you're going to go do that and can't do anything else. And so if that's what God does, then we need to pray. We need to pray. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus told us to. So will you with me, will you pray for God to raise up more preachers. Paul was compelled by God to preach. We need more men that God compels to preach. Men who understand that calling themselves and men who have churches around them to cultivate it and to send them out. But not only was Paul compelled to preach, he was compelled to win others for Christ. Now some of you might be sitting there saying, that last section of the sermon applied to me indirectly. It applies to all of us, but applied to me indirectly, but this next section applies to every single one of us directly. Paul was compelled to win others to Christ, verses 19 through 23. Notice how he says of all these different groups of people that he became like them. To the Jews, he became like a Jew. To those under the law, he became like one under the law. To those outside of the law, he became like one outside of the law. To the weak, he became like the weak. To where at the end of verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Becoming all things to all people so that we can save some of them. Now don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He is not saying, go become worldly so you can win the people of the world. That's not what he's saying. How ridiculous would it be if I read that text and I said, I want to go reach people who get drunk all the time for Christ. So I'm going to go get drunk all the time. That's ridiculous, right? It's a complete misunderstanding, satanic misunderstanding of the text. I, I want to reach people who are sexually immoral, so I'm going to go be sexually immoral to reach them. No. Right? I, I want to reach the rich, so I'm going to go get rich. No, brothers and sisters. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't swallow that lie from Satan, that to reach the world we've got to become worldly. Right? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is also not saying that we live double lives. He's not saying that he lives a double life depending on the crowd he's around, right? He's not a hypocrite in the way that he lives, right? He's not saying that. Think about the guy who acts holy and respectable around his church friends, but then he's cussing and making crude jokes when he's with his pals at work, right? Or think about Peter who fell to this one time. The apostle Peter in Galatians, Paul had to confront him 
Because when Peter was just around a bunch of Gentiles, he was hanging out with everybody, he was eating everybody. But then when a, a big, important group of Jews comes, he draws back from the Gentiles and he says, nope, I'm not eating at their table, I'm going to go eat at this table over here. Right? He's living a double life. That's not what Paul is talking about here. And also he's not saying, even though it might seem like he is, he's not saying that you need to be everything to everyone. Because you can't. None of us can be everything to everyone. When Paul says, I've become all things to all people, he's using a figure of speech, okay? Believe it or not, there are figures of speech in the Bible to where you don't take them literally. Right? Somebody asks you, do you take the Bible literally? You say, well, what, what do you mean by that? Because when it says God is my rock, it doesn't mean he's an actual rock, right? We don't take everything in the Bible literally, but we do take everything that God says seriously, Right? And so he's using a figure of speech here. Paul does not mean you have to be everything to everyone. Paul is not telling you that you have to be the ideal Renaissance man who knows something about everything so he can be admired among every people group. Right? It's not what he's saying. What he does mean is contextualization. Contextualization, which is a word that simply means being flexible depending on who you're around. Being willing to adapt to the culture and the customs and the traditions of those you are around so that you can better reach them for the gospel. Being willing to adopt the ways that other people are living as long as they don't make you compromise your convictions so that you won't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. So when Paul was around Jews, he'd go kosher for a while. He might refrain from eating certain foods even though he knew He was free in Christ to eat those foods. But when he's around those people, he says, I don't have to do that. That's fine. No big deal. But then when he's around a group of Gentiles, be a little bit different, right? He says and explains it a little bit in chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. This might even be on the same page that you're on in your Bibles, but look with me over at chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, same book, chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 kind of helps us understand it a little bit. Paul says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So what's he saying? Paul's saying he he was committed to giving no unnecessary offense. He was committed to giving no unnecessary offense, making sure he never did anything that would put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. When Paul is around other people, he's not saying, I'm going to be who I am. I don't care what you guys do. I'm going to do what I want to do. No, he was flexible. He's willing to give up his rights. He's willing to give up some of the things that he does all the time so that he can better reach people for Christ. A wonderful example is a man who was the very first inland missionary to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. He's from England. Okay? Hudson Taylor is the very first missionary to, to be in the country of China for Christ okay? because of the, the history of China and their government. And when he started, he was just your typical Englishman, and he shows up, and then pretty soon he starts to realize that he can reach those people better if he dresses like a Chinese person. And he cuts his hair like a Chinese man. And the people who are supporting him back in England, who start to understand this, start saying, what are you doing? You're not Chinese. Stop acting like something you're not. This is inauthentic. Why are you doing that? But Hudson Taylor realized that once those Chinese people saw him as one of them, 
then they would open their hearts more to his message and to, to what he would say. Versus someone who just shows up and says, I'm an Englishman and proud of it. I don't care, right? It's contextualization. Not giving any offense. Not putting anything in the way of the gospel. Because what's most important? The way you get to dress? The way you get to eat? The way you get to do your hair? No. What's most important is the gospel. What's most important is the salvation of that other person. Think about, think about how we do this instinctively, right? You might think about a preacher, right? I will not dress the same speaking to you that I would speaking to a group of teenagers or, uh, like, let's say, and this will never actually happen, but let's say I was speaking at the National Prayer Breakfast hosted by the President of the United States. I'm wearing a suit and tie to that thing, right? It's not the same, right? We're not going to dress the same way. It's contextualization. Many of you do this intuitively. Think about the way you would talk around a bunch of children playing in the snow versus the way you would talk to a group of 70 or 80 year old men sitting around a table at an old general store. Just talk different. It's it's totally different. You contextualize. Think about on a a typical shopping Saturday, think about the crowd at Nanwood Market out here on the square versus the crowd at Moore's Pool Hall. It's totally different, right? It's a different crowd. It's a different tone. Think about Lindsay Wilson students versus members of the local Veterans Association. Different crowd, different tone, different contextualization, right? Contextualizing the gospel based on who you're with because we don't want to put anything in the way of someone coming to know Christ. And so if you want to reach someone who really enjoys fishing, go fishing with them. Learn a little bit about fishing so that you can have a conversation with it. If someone's really into politics, educate yourself so you can have an informed conversation on the issues, right? Meet them on their turf. That's what Paul's saying. Meet them on their turf. Don't insist on it being your way, meet them on their turf. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says, though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He's free from everybody. He's got freedom in Christ, right? No one tells Paul what to do except God, right? But for the sake of the gospel, he's made himself a servant to everyone. Think about Jesus in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul says, Jesus, even though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But while he was on this earth, he made himself a servant to everyone. He considered others more important than himself. Was anyone else actually more important than Jesus? Was that objectively true? No. But Jesus acted like it. Jesus convinced himself, the needs of others are more important than my own. The wants of others are more important than my own. Contextualization. Becoming all things to all men so that you might save some. And so Paul here, instead of insisting on doing things his way, he would rather do things their way. He's meeting them on their turf for the sake of the gospel. Because what compels him, what compels him is seeing people come to Jesus. Paul lived in such a way that the salvation of others drove him more than his own self-interest. The salvation of others drove him more than his own self-interest. What about you? What drives you? Self-interest or the salvation of others? Jesus was compelled by a gospel love for us. Jesus was compelled. His life was a life lived compelled by a gospel love 
for people, for us. His entire life was driven by the mission. He resolutely set his face toward the cross and he never turned aside. Never once did Jesus question what God had called him to do. And just like Paul, becoming all things to all men, so that by those means he might save some of them, Jesus became like us to win us. You see? He became like us to win us. He could have stayed where he was, in his place glorified with God in heaven, and just sent down a message to those human beings. That's not what he did. He became one of us. He became one of us to win us. This past week, I'm reading through the book of Job in my daily devotions. Just That's where I'm at. Reading through the book of Job. Job suffered more than anyone has ever suffered on this earth, perhaps, except for Jesus Christ. And in Job's suffering, he starts crying out to God. And one of the things that he begins to say in the book of Job is, God, I, I know you know all things, and I know you're good, but you don't understand because you're not a human. You've never experienced this, God. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't have our weaknesses. You don't know. He's crying out in his honest frustration in his suffering and saying, God, you don't know. Brothers and sisters, we can't say that anymore. He does. Jesus became one of us to win us. He didn't just become a human being. He became sin. I don't mean he was sinful. He never sinned in his whole life. But we just sang it. It says it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What that means is on the cross, the sins of the whole world were laid on Him. And He was blamed for them by God. God knows that Jesus never sinned, but the plan, the plan was to punish every sin in Jesus. You see, God can't save you by sweeping sin under the rug. You can't be forgiven by just God saying, oh, you you sinned, no big deal. God can't do that. If God just said no big deal, turned a blind eye to sin, swept it under the rug, He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be a just God. He would be less than God. No, that's not what God did. God figured out a way to punish sins and to still offer forgiveness to sinners. He laid those sins on His Son, who never sinned once in His life, and He poured out the full force of His wrath on Jesus Christ on the cross, and Jesus took it. He endured more than we will ever know on the cross because He became sin. He became like us to win us. And so the question this morning for every one of us is this. We see that Paul was compelled by the gospel. We see that Jesus was compelled by the gospel. We see that the mature Christian person is compelled by the gospel. But what if I'm not? What if I'm honest with myself and I hear all this and I say, I I get it. I see it. But I'm just not. I'm not compelled by the gospel. What do I do? Well, this morning, I, I can only give you four reasons why perhaps you're not compelled by the gospel. Four reasons why you might not be compelled by the gospel. And from these reasons, I think you'll understand the next step. Reason number one, why would someone not be compelled by the gospel? Well, perhaps you've not obeyed the gospel. You won't be compelled by the gospel until you've obeyed the gospel. 
until you have given your life to Jesus Christ. You can't be compelled by the gospel if you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. No one who does not have the Holy Spirit, or anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit, they will not be compelled by this gospel. You can't. You must obey the gospel and have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The Bible tells us, God tells us, when you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, you put your faith and your trust in Him, you trust in Him to save you because you can't save yourself, You repent of your sins. You turn away from your sin. You confess Jesus as your Lord in front of others. And then you go back here and you're baptized into His name. And I say back here, it doesn't matter where it is. You can do it in a swimming pool, in a lake. It's not about the water. It's about what God's doing in your heart at the time. But what happens when someone is dunked under that water in faith is that they receive forgiveness of sins and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of them if you don't have that, you will not be compelled by the gospel. It won't compel you. Perhaps you're not compelled by the gospel because you do not fully understand the gospel. This can happen for someone who's not saved. It can happen for someone who is saved. The gospel is not compelling because I don't really understand it. You realize what Jesus did. You realize what happened on the cross. Jesus was not just up there dying and saying, this is how much God loves you. That's that's not all it was. That is, but it's not all it was. Jesus was taking the wrath of God for the sins of the world so that that could open up a way for people to actually be forgiven and God not compromise His justice. It opened up a way for people to be reconciled to God. We sang that song just a moment ago, the curtain was torn in two curtain it's talking about is the curtain in the temple. See, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and the temple, the curtain was hung to block God's presence from the people. You could not go into God's presence because you would die. God hung a curtain. God had the priest hung, hang a, a really thick, important curtain right there so that people could minister in that tabernacle or in that temple and not be struck down dead. And if you came in there without your sins having been taken care of, if you came in there on the wrong day, in the wrong manner, or if you weren't the right person to be coming back there, you were going to die. Sin separates us from God. But when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying now there's a way to God open to all of us. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, we can be reconciled to God. This is the gospel. Reason number three, what if I'm not compelled by the gospel? Well, perhaps you do not often think of the gospel. You might say you're a Christian, you might be a Christian, but how often do you actually think of it? How often does the gospel come into your mind Monday through Saturday? How much time do we actually spend in God's Word being reminded of the gospel and what God did, and what Christ did in the gospel. We won't be compelled by the gospel if we don't spend time thinking about it. Or perhaps you are not in awe of what the gospel has done for you. You won't be compelled by the gospel unless you have an awe for what God has done for you. We should all, all of us, have an attitude toward the gospel like this. You mean me? Me. 
God could forgive everything I've done. I know everything I've done. Y'all don't know everything I've done. Y'all don't know everything I've thought. Y'all don't know the deepest, darkest corners of my heart that I'm embarrassed about. You mean God sees all of that and he would still forgive me? You mean I don't have to pay for those sins? You mean I can be reconciled to God after all the things I've done to him? If you're not in awe of the gospel, you won't be compelled by it. So I think that's a really good place for us to to end and for us to go to God in prayer. We do this often. We do this most weeks. We're going to spend a few moments in silent prayer, all of us, reflecting on what we just heard, responding to God. What, What has God been doing in your heart during the sermon? I don't know. And so because of that, I want to give every single one of us a chance to respond right now while it's on our hearts, while it's fresh. Right now, we want to go to God and pray to Him silently. And each of us need to reckon with Him and reckon with that word that we just heard. How do you need to respond to God because of what we just heard? We'll respond privately in silent prayer. And then after a few moments of that, we'll give a chance for those who need to to respond publicly. Let's pray together.